0: Man, we're so glad that you're here today. Let me handle a little family business in the first 30 seconds uh, before we just kind of jump into today's text. Uh, Remember, this Wednesday night is the first Wednesday of the month, so it'll be our first Wednesday prayer service. So we'll be here 6.30 to about 7.30, 7.35, praying and worshiping through a psalm. We'd love to invite you to come pray with us this Wednesday or watch online if you can't be here live. Um, And for our volunteer community, our volunteer family, remember Sunday night, October 15th, no Chiefs game, um, no, no schedule conflict. We're going to be meeting with our volunteer family, what we're calling our, uh, our volunteer-inspire fall festival. So we'll have a time of worship, a little time of a message in Ephesians chapter 4 that I think you'll enjoy, and then fire pits and bonfires and games um, and food. Just our volunteers to come and be served rather than to serve more than a 1,000 that serve so faithfully at least once a month. Uh, we'd love to invite you to come be a part of that on Sunday night, October 15th at 5 pm. Now, if you have your bibles today, we're back in Philippians chapter 1. I announced 2 weeks ago on anniversary Sunday that 2024 begins an 18-month initiative for our church that we're calling Come and Surrender. And we're challenging people and we're trying to help people learn how to surrender 1% of their life for kingdom living for the sake of kingdom movement. We just wrapped up the book of Matthew, 3 years studying the life of Jesus, and we saw him give his followers a mission, a commission to leverage their life for his kingdom. So we're gonna ask you to take 1% of your life in 2024 for 18 months and leverage it for his kingdom. This fall, we're kinda laying some training wheels or some train tracks on what it looks like to surrender in the book of Philippians. So last week, we were in Philippians chapter one with the Apostle Paul, and we learned how to surrender our situation in this series that we're calling a surrendered life. We said this last week about your situation. Um, I don't know what your situation is right now, But I know two things about it if you're a follower of Jesus. God is in it and God can use it. Let me say it again. We learned last week that I I don't know everything about your situation, but I know two things if you're a follower of Jesus God is in it and God can use it if you will surrender it to Him. This week, as we jump into the tail end of Philippians chapter 1 and start Philippians chapter 2, we're gonna learn how to surrender our perspective how to learn what it looks like to see our life live for the purpose of Jesus, not for the purpose of ourselves. As we finish chapter one, we're going to see what I call number one, just the point of the letter. So we spent the first 26 verses last week with the Apostle Paul, um, writing to a church that he'd started a decade earlier. He's sitting in prison, and the first 26 verses kind of say, hey, what's up, miss y'all, it's been a decade. Want you to know I'm in jail. But that's not the point of the letter. The point of the letter is not that I'm in jail, but it's that, like, God is using this season in me, and I want to make sure God is still using your season for you. So he kind of, he lets them know as we get out of Philippians chapter 1, the point of this letter is not for you to learn about me, it's for you to learn about what God wants you to do. So he just kind of summarizes the point of the letter in verses 27 through 30. Here's what it says. Paul says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then... Whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I'll know that you stand firm in the one spirit. Striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they'll be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now here. That I still have. I don't wanna take a ton of time in these four verses, but there's some word groupings that I need you to be aware of just for context. The first is the first two words in verse 27, whatever whatever happens. Paul's reflecting on what he just said, which is, I might die here, I might get out, I'm not sure. Here's what you need to know whether Paul lived or died in this Roman prison, he wanted the people of the Philippian church to thrive spiritually. So Paul gets to verse 27, he's like, enough about me, I'm in jail, hope it goes well, might not, whatever. I need you to know whatever happens to me, here's my goal, that you would conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of Christ. And Paul then gives us over the next two verses three very, very clear ways to conduct ourselves as a church of Jesus that exists for Jesus and his mission. Paul said, I'm not sure what's going to happen to me But here's what I know needs to happen in you if your church is going to be successful carrying out the mission of Jesus. And he says three things. He says, first, I need you all to stand firm in mission, and I need you to be united on mission. I think the New International Version, which I'm teaching from today, probably does a poor job with the Greek language because it says, uh, Paul said, I hope you'll stand firm in one spirit. And the word spirit is capitalized, which often means Holy Spirit in New Testament Scripture. When spirit's capitalized, usually talking about the Holy Spirit. But when you go back and really read this, it doesn't appear that Paul's talking about the Holy Spirit in the Greek language. He's basically referring to the word attitude. I hope you see your your engagement in the Philippian church as being on mission, as living on mission. One of the things I love about our church is, at least to me, our church feels like an on-mission movement more than it does just a weekly service. Like God in the very early days of our church led our core team not even to put the word church in our mission statement because it was never our goal to build a church. It was our goal to be on mission as a church in the kingdom of God. So if you read our mission statement as you walk out the doors at Face 150 Highway, you'll see we never were trying to build a church. We were trying to be the church. We're trying to live in mission and on mission together. So let me ask you a question. Why are you here? Is it to further the mission of God in the world, or is it mostly for you? Paul's going to begin this surrendering of perspective by saying, why do you even take part in church things, in spiritual things? Is it because of what God has called you to, or is it just kind of all about you? He also said, number two, you need to play as a team. He used a really interesting word. The word strive together is the Greek word athleo. We get the word athletics from it. It literally meant to strive with your team in competition. That's what it it means. Paul's saying you need to see your church not as something for you, but you need to see your church as as a team that God has put together for his mission, and you need to make sure you're doing your part of the mission. Do you know there's some of you who are going to get a chance to worship and learn scripture today because there's someone on our team who's in the kids' area watching your kid and it's making it, much easier for you to kind of lock in and listen today you know, we had some guests who showed up today who weren't really sure how to park or get in and out, and they didn't know anything about what we were doing, but somebody played their position today on our team to receive guests and to park them and to talk to them and to answer their questions. Like, there are some of you who right now are kind of sipping some cup of coffee because somebody on our team played their position today and made their coffee. Like, So let me ask you, are you, are you playing on the team today, or are you just like sitting in your stands watching the game? Paul said as you think about your church and what Jesus wants you to be as a church, play as a team. Figure out your position, engage in your position, get in the game, don't just sit in the stands and watch. But then he also said let's make sure that nothing frightens us. He said you need to live with courage. You need to be aware of opposition but not alarmed by it. The term he used, don't be frightened, is a Greek term used for a horse that is startled and throws its rider off injuring it. Look at the word picture Paul is putting together. Paul is saying as a follower of Jesus in a broken world that doesn't follow Jesus, you're going to have spiritual opposition. Don't let that alarm you to the point where you react in a way that makes it very uncomfortable for people to be in your church. Your fight is not with the next modern thing happening in culture that you need to rear up against. Just be on mission. Be steady. Be smooth stay on mission. Be aware that there always is going to be opposition, but don't be so alarmed by it that you throw your church back and forth every time there's some new thing that you need to be opposed to. Paul said, you need to be these things. Why? Why do we need to be these things? Paul said, because these will be clear signs that I am in you. When you read about the 2,000-year-old universal church of Jesus, there were always Two universal truths that were true of it for more than 2,000 years that gave it legitimacy. How can I know if I'm in one of Jesus' churches that he launched 2,000 years ago at Pentecost? Well, two things will be true of that church. Those who oppose the authority of God in their lives will be against that church. People are not against churches as much for what churches teach or the experiences they've had in churches as much as they are against churches because they don't think anyone should be able to tell anyone what to do. They're just opposed to all authority in general. So Paul says, as long as people are opposed to authority, there's going to be people opposed to what I'm doing in church because you are allowing God, King Jesus, to have authority. He said, at the exact same time, you'll know a legitimate church of Jesus because those living under the authority of Jesus will face opposition with courage. They won't quit. They'll keep moving forward. But... You need to hear this. I don't know that it's good news, but it's important news. You will face opposition. Paul actually used the phrase, it has been granted to you. The Greek word is the word that means gift. Paul actually said you have been gifted to suffer under opposition. One of the gifts that God gives people in his church is the ability to suffer in a way that helps them understand how Jesus suffered and to suffer in a way that that makes them lean on Jesus more. But it's more than that. Watch what Paul says. Christians not only have the gift of suffering, because of Jesus and his church, they have the gift of seeing others suffer well. So Paul said, it's been granted on your behalf, if you're following Jesus, you'll suffer. But you've already seen me do it, so just keep watching me. You know, there are some parts of my job that make being a pastor the most awesome job in the world. Uh, Last night I got to officiate the wedding of a couple up in Parkville, a couple different generations go to our church, a couple in their 20s whose mom and dads both go to our church. And I was reminded again last night, sometimes being a pastor is just totally awesome because you're in these intimate moments with people in your church, in their life, that not very many people get to be a part of. So, like, to be able to be with the bridal party immediately before and immediately after the wedding, to get to stand up with um, the groom, like I got to, I got to be within earshot as as the groom walked his mom down, followed by his dad. He gave his mom a hug, and then his dad gave him a hug and said, "I love you, and I'm so proud of you." And I thought, I am the only one in this room who heard that. And I thought, what a cool moment. And then it was cool. I've not had this happen at many weddings. The bride came down with her mom and dad both walking her down the aisle. When I got to the point where I said, "Who gives this woman to be married to this man?" and her dad Steve said, "We do." Um, I watched my groom's future mother-in-law put her arms around him, and she said, "Welcome to our family." As she hugged him, and I thought, nobody heard that but me. Like this, is so cool that I get to be in like this position, like an audience to this wedding. And then after the wedding, as everybody walks out, you know, they play the song, and then you go downstairs, and like, you're in the room in the first moments of this new couple, and the bridesmaids are crying, and the groomsmen are like high-fiving, and the couple's looking at each other like, oh my gosh, did we just really do this? Like, are we married? And they're looking at the rings, and I'm like, what a cool experience to get to be a part of these intimate moments with family celebrating things that not very many people in the outside world get to see. So cool sometimes to get to be a pastor. But I think the most spiritually valuable thing that has happened in my life as a pastor is I for the last 25 years have been invited into the sacred space of suffering and I've watched Christian men and women suffer well and it has taught me so much. I get to watch people of faith go through things that I know are in my future and I get to see if the promises are real. I get to see if the presence of God is real. I get to see if there's any hope in those moments. I get to see if there's any joy in those moments. So I did a wedding yesterday afternoon, and then last night laying in bed, getting ready to go to bed, I was on the phone with one of our elders whose mom turns 96 in 10 days. She fell two days ago, and she probably won't make it to 96. So I was just talking to him, just trying to minister to him, but it's interesting because in every one of those situations, I literally am wearing two hats. Like I'm this pastor trying to comfort, and I am this Christian taking notes. And I'm listening to him talk about how he's handling it as a son, her only son. How he's handling it as a dad. How he's talking to his kids. How he's handling it as a grandpa. How he's handling it as a husband. How he's handling it as kind of an extended family member. And I'm, I'm watching this guy, and I'm listening to him Speak through his faith about how things are going to be okay for her and they're going to be okay for him. And I'm watching someone suffer well thinking, this is gold for me. If you're in the room and you're suffering, if you suffer well, it will help someone. Paul said it's been granted to you. You're going to suffer. It's a broken world. You're going to suffer. Paul said you already have watched me do it. Suffer well. You can help somebody suffer well. So there's a point to kind of the letter, Paul says, I just, I really want you to learn how to live for Jesus. But number two, there's this picture of unity. Interesting pivot, but really important. Look at verses one through four of Philippians chapter two. Point of the letter, then we see the picture of unity. Paul says, therefore, if, if you have your pen, go ahead and circle these ifs, there's four. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if, any comfort from his love, if any common sharing of the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. Somebody say the word if. It's a bad word in this text, uh, in the English language because when you read it really carefully in the greek the word if given four times really should be the word since since this has happened since you do is what it should say listen to it read the way it was written therefore since you have since you've been encouraged by being united with christ and since you've been comforted from his love and since you have shared in his spirit and since you have learned tenderness and compassion. Since all these things have happened, we would summarize it this way: Since Jesus has so radically changed your heart, let's begin to change your habits in how you interact with others and why you interact with them. That's what Paul's saying: Since Jesus has so radically changed you on the inside, it's time for you to change on the outside. Since Jesus has so dramatically and dynamically changed who you are on the inside. The way you see other people and the reasons you interact with other people should now all be totally different. Now, that is a powerful thought, but I believe it becomes a little more potent when you reverse engineer it. You say, what what do you mean by reverse engineer it? Paul is saying, since this has happened on the inside, it should happen on the outside. So let's reverse engineer it. If it's not happening on the outside, if the sense is really an if, if it's not happening on the outside, it's probably because... It's not happened on the inside yet. So I would say, like, what if What if? What if it's an if instead of a since? Let's look at what the list would be like. Like, what if it's an, instead of since you're a Christian, these things happen, what if, what if it's an if? If you don't really walk with Jesus daily. If you haven't been deeply impacted by his love. If you don't court and understand the Holy Spirit, if your heart and your heart for others has not been changed, like Paul is saying, since these things have happened, you're a new person. But if we reverse engineer it and say, well, you're not a new person, we would say, oh, it's because these things haven't happened yet. If these things haven't happened, then look at the next line. If these things haven't happened, then you have no reason. And here's what's even scary. You have no power to live for other people or their own interest. If Jesus has not done a work inside of you, it will really show on the outside of you. What I find interesting is you look at this graphic, someone refuses to live for others, and you say, "So, so they're just selfish? No, yes, but no. Selfishness is the symptom, not the illness. The illness is they're just spiritually mature. They do not yet know Jesus deeply enough. Let me, let me just say what Paul said. If you're in this room and you live more for yourself than others, it's because you just don't know Jesus deeply enough yet. It's not that you're selfish. You're just not mature spiritually yet. And it's a threat to the church. It's interesting if you're here. Let's go back to that screen. You say, man, I feel like I always put myself first. I feel like, um, I feel like I'm always thinking of me. I feel like I never think of others is there, a, is there a way to help me change? There is actually. If you will walk with Jesus daily, that'll change you. And if you learn how to be deeply impacted by his love, that, that will change you. And if you begin to court and understand the Holy Spirit and you begin to listen to his voice instead of your own, like that will change you. And your heart and your heart for others can be changed. But only if you know Jesus deeply. So it's interesting because Paul gives us this powerful thought. Since Jesus has changed you on the inside, how you now, your perspective of you and others should be changed. If it's not changed, it's because these things have not happened yet on the inside, and this was a problem in the church. As a matter of fact, the greatest and most common thread in the New Testament church was people who leveraged the church for their lives or for their specific ministry purposes. When you read through the book of Acts, you're gonna find that every congregation that began struggled with people who wanted to use that congregation for their own interest, or they wanted to leverage that congregation for the things they were passionate about in ministry. Every congregation in Acts had the problem of disunity and division. When you read the epistles, you can throw another word that starts with D. Every, every one of the New Testament epistles mentions disunity in the church and bad doctrine. So they were all warned Like, you got to be on the same page, and you got to watch your doctrine. That's the epistles. But the book of Acts that just tell the stories, it's like, man, Christians have a hard time getting along. Christians have a hard time playing on the same team. Christians have a hard time having the same attitude. Christians have a hard time working through opposition, but doing it in a healthy way. Like, that's what the Bible says. And it's interesting because I I read a quote as I studied for this message that feels like it was written near the tail end of 2020 because there were so many divisive things that happened in 2020 that just began to tear at the fabric of the church. So many things that people wanted to leverage the church for in 2020. But this quote was not written in 2020. It was written in 1984, 30 years ago. Listen to what this quote says about unity and disunity in the church. Because fracturing Christ's church is one of Satan's major objectives, the challenge to preserve the unity of the Spirit is constant. This next sentence is powerful and scary. A divided, factious, and bickering church is spiritually weak. Let me read that again. A divided, factious, bickering church is spiritually weak. It therefore offers little threat to the devil's work, and it has little power for advancing the gospel of Christ. Discord and division are inevitable when people focus on their own agendas to the exclusion of others in the church. Now watch this next screen. Often such a narrow focus arises out of genuine passion for an important ministry. But disregard of fellow believers, no matter how unintentional, is a mark of loveless, sinful indifference that produces jealousy, contention, strife, and the other enemies of spiritual unity. Wow. Paul's like, I see what you're doing, I see why you're doing it. It's not helpful. It's not helpful to do your thing when Jesus is trying to do his thing. It's not helpful. Your perspective needs to deepen of who Jesus is, so that your life can change of how you serve Jesus. Instead of giving us a list of how you are humble, instead of giving us a list of how to stay unified, instead of giving us a list of how not to be contentious, Paul skips all that and he's like, "Listen, your example number three just has to be the the person and the purpose of unity." Paul's like, "I could give you a Bible study on how to how to how to be humble, how to have unity." But instead, let me just remind you who Jesus is. He is the person, and he lived for the purpose of God's unity. Look at verses 5 through 11. In your relationships with one another, you need to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we want to talk a little bit about the person and the purpose of unity, but I want to flip them and kind of start with purpose because we see why Jesus was who he was. It was this perspective. Look at the purpose of the mindset. The purpose of the mindset, according to verse 5, why Jesus lived the way he lived and what resulted in it was that Jesus would be acknowledged as the spiritual leader of the world and that God would receive glory through it. Now, I want you to back up for a minute. Paul says, This should be your mindset that every day of your life, Jesus would be seen as the spiritual leader of the world and God would get glory for your life. This is the mindset. Every day I wake up thinking, how can people see Jesus as the Lord of my life? How can God receive glory today? This is the mindset. Paul last week told us this is what I live for, great commission. I'm a servant of Christ. I'm a servant of the gospel. I'm a servant of other Christians. I'm a servant of discipleship and sanctification in people. That's what I live for. This was Paul's goal. This was Jesus' goal. The question is, is this your goal? Because only when the purpose of your life matches Paul's and Jesus does Jesus become a really good role model for you. I will say this, and I mean it with all insincer- and I mean it with all sincerity. Um, if you have not yet decided your life is not about you, don't make Jesus your role model. Because you cannot become like Jesus and still make your life all about you. does not work. It's not his playbook. It's not his model. It's not his teaching. If your life is all still about you and what you can get, Jesus cannot be your role model. But like Paul and Jesus, if you're like, I just want God to use my life, Paul's a really good role model. Jesus is a really good role model. And what we learn is some practical humility, but before we learn practical humility, we learn some theological stuff. Because Paul says your mindset should be the same as Christ Jesus, and then it appears as if he gives kind of a doxological hymn that historians believe, like maybe every church said every Sunday. He just talked about how, how Jesus went from being God in heaven to God on earth to God on mission to bringing people to God. And there's some real rich theology in Philippians chapter 2 that is not the point of Philippians chapter 2. Paul's just leveraging it for practical teaching. But there's a couple of things powerful enough in it today that I need to make sure you understand it. I'm going to point out what I call two theological gag reflexes. There's some things in, theolog- in, in Philippians chapter 2 that when you hear the opposite... It needs to cause you to gag spiritually and think that's a dangerous place to be around. What are the theological gag reflexes? The first is this. Anytime you hear that Jesus is not fully God, that should immediately get your attention and let you know you're in a place that's not teaching the Bible. By the way, a lot of the different people who will come and knock on your door and try to talk to you about Jesus will, t- will tell you he's something other than God. You need to know when that line hits You need to say, oh, look, and then shut the door in your face, lock it, and just go back to watching (laughs) football. Like, that conversation can be over. Almost every major world religion, almost every major cult is going to acknowledge Jesus, just not as God. Some of them will point to this text. They will say Jesus didn't consider equality with God to be something to be grasped, so he stopped being God. That's not what it says. It does not say Jesus stopped being God. It says that he surrendered some parts of his divinity so that he could serve his primary mission as the second person of the triune Godhead. Was Jesus divine while he was a man on earth? Yes, he was, but he emptied himself a little bit of his divine glory. Now, Peter, James, and John saw it on the Mount of Transfiguration and it about knocked him out. Like, why didn't Jesus look like that all the time? Because it would have just knocked everyone out and that was not his purpose, like to be bl- like, have a blinding flash of light follow him around. So, f- so for, a minute, for a minute, he kind of, he kind of closed and, and covered up a little bit his divine glory. We know that for a minute he, he, he didn't use his divine authority. He had it. He actually told the people who came to arrest him at Gethsemane, remember? He was like, I could call so many angels to take you boys out right now. Like, I won't, but I could because that's my authority. I'm not going to use it, but I could. And Pilate's like, what am I going to do with you? And Jesus is like, listen, you have no authority over me. You're only going to do what I have decided you're going to do. So he, he laid down his divine authority at times. We know he laid aside his divine attributes. One of his divine attributes as God would be that he's omnipresent. But in a body as a human, he was only in one place at one time. We know at some points in times he laid down his divine riches. Paul said Jesus was rich, but for your sake, he became poor. So you might become rich spiritually. We know he laid down his face-to-face, eternal relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, which is why after three hours of separation on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, I just feel like you have forsaken me. Why did he do it? Because of the mission that God had sent him on. But you need to be really careful anytime somebody said Jesus was not God. Yes, Jesus was fully God. But he laid aside some of his divine attributes so that he could serve in God's bigger mission. You also have to be careful when you hear somebody say that Jesus can be Savior but not Lord. Lord. That needs to be a little bit of a divine gag reflex for you. Oh, Jesus, uh, Jesus will forgive you and he'll save you, but you don't have to let him tell you what to do. You need to know the Bible does not offer us this type of Jesus. It's interesting, the word Lord in the Greek language, in just Greek culture is the word "Kyrios." It means sir, just a respectful term. In Jewish context, this was not saying you should call Jesus Sir. The Jews would not use God's proper name Yahweh so they created different names for God Adonai Jehovah and they translated those as lord but it meant God it was the most respectful term they knew how to use to say God so when Paul says Jesus is lord he's not saying Jesus is sir he's saying Jesus is God he is your master and you need to know there's nowhere in the Bible where you are offered forgiveness for your past without unattached from leadership of your future it's just not there As a matter of fact, in the book of Acts, twice Jesus is called Savior, 92 times he's called Lord. 747 times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as Lord. It means master and leader. This thought that somebody gives you that Jesus loves you, he'll forgive all your past, but you don't have to do what he tells you. You need to know that's a theological gag reflex. You need to know that that's not Jesus of the Bible. Like the Jesus of the Bible is all or nothing. If he wasn't, it would change one of the greatest songs of all time. All to Jesus, I surrender. Can you imagine singing some to Jesus, <laughs> I surrender, some to him, I begrudgingly give. Every, every now and then, <laughs> I will sometimes love and probably doubt him in his presence. Not daily, but at least two Sundays a month. Like, in his presence, two Sundays a month, like... I'll live, because I surrender some, I surrender some, some to thee, my Savior but not Lord, I surrender some. That's a terrible song. Like that is, that is, that is a terribly demotivating song. You could put the word most in, it'd still be a bad song. Most to Jesus, I surrender, I won't sing the whole thing. One of my friends texted me after the 8 a.m. service and he said, You have forever uh, ruined I Surrender All because you changed keys four times at least. And I texted him and said, That was not I Surrender All. That was I Surrender Some. It's a totally different song, um, and I meant to ruin it for you. Like, here's what's funny that is a terrible song. That is how most of us live our life. I Surrender Some. When Jesus is Savior, but he's not Lord, you're saying, I surrender some. The parts of my life I need his help with, surrender those. Parts of his life I need his power in, surrender those. Parts of his life I need his forgiveness in, surrender almost all of those. Other parts, no, I surrender some. That needs to be a theological gag reflex when someone tells you Jesus wants to be your Savior. He does not want to be your Lord, not the Jesus of the Bible. We read in verse 7 that he could have chosen to hang on to his All his divine glory, all his divine authority, all his divine attributes. But instead, he didn't do that. The word in verse 7 is rather in the English language. It's a really cool Greek word. It's the word allo. It translates not this but that. It tells us Jesus had a choice and he chose not this but that. What was the not this? Jesus had a choice but he chose not this. He did not hold on to or cling to his prized spiritual position and possessions to be used for himself. He had a choice and he chose not not this. He chose that he wasn't going to assert his divine right on his behalf. Not this, but that. Jesus chose not this. Live for yourself. Nope, I don't choose. I'm not going to choose that one. Not this, but that. What What did he choose? He chose to live for another's mission. Not this, but that. He chose to sacrifice every level of his privilege until the plan of God was completed in him and through him. Y'all ever eaten seven-layer dip with tortilla chips on a good Mexican night at your house? Look at the seven levels of sacrifice in Philippians chapter 2. Say, did you just compare Jesus to seven-layer dip? Yes, but it's because I want you to remember it. Next time you eat seven-layer dip, you're going to think, It's kind of like Jesus. Next time you sing I Surrender All, the song will be ruined. I apologize, but watch this. Verse 6, not this. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but that. Number one, he made himself nothing. Number two, he took the nature of a servant. Number three, it was a servant made in human likeness. Number four, it was a servant in human likeness who was a man. Number five, a humble man. Number six, a man who died. Number seven, a man who died on a cross. Jesus sacrificed every level of privilege that he had until God could use him fully. And it said when he did that, God made him highly exalted. And what you and I need to understand is when we have that same perspective, when we are willing not to use our life for us but for Jesus All of a sudden, we are in this highly exalted mission of God to be used in the plan of God to bring praise to God is the most highly exalted position that God could ever use Jesus in or us in. Is that your perspective? When I wake up, how can God use me today in the plan of God to bring praise to God? Is that your perspective? How can God use this season in the plan of God to bring praise to God? Is that your perspective? Because what we learn today is Jesus chose to live for God and others So that we could choose to live for Jesus and others. Is that your perspective? If it is, you have a highly exalted role in the mission of God. As we close today, our reflection questions will scroll on the screen, give you a chance to ask a question about what you've heard. Let the Holy Spirit answer, turn it into a prayer, and then I'll come close us in prayer. But my goal today is that your perspective would be challenged. Last week we learned God's in our situation, God uses our situation. This week we learned our perspective needs to be a life that's not about us, but that's about his plan and his praise. As God said to your heart, how do you need to respond? God, as we reflect on these questions, open our hearts and our minds to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen.